everyone. I'm Vicki Basilica, Director of the Clinical Specialists and Scientists section here at ASHP, and thank you for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional program from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So we're going to start by talking about USP 795. There's probably the least amount of changes compared to 797 there. So we'll start with the easy stuff, right? Then we'll get to the fun stuff. Not that 795 isn't fun. It's fun. And we'll talk through some of the elements that are here. Again, we won't go through all of the changes. We did highlight in these slides that you'll have access to. What are all the changes from the 2019 version to this version that's here? What were all the changes that were there? So you have a great list here, also working on releasing some information so you can see back to the 2014 or the 2008 version, if you're looking at 797, about that crosswalk about what's really changing. So look out for a future publication from that that won't come from USP. Introduction and scope. There's a couple things that we heard in the comment period, right? And these are things that, I mean, we have countless amount of discussions, but sometimes things are maybe not considered. So when you start with what needs to be sterile and what needs to be non-sterile, Otic preparations, non-sterile, right? Everyone says that. What if you have a ruptured eardrum? Okay, good point. That probably needs to be sterile, right? And so this is the beauty of these public comments periods because we can hear from folks all in these different practice settings and ensuring that we're protecting that patient's health and well-being from that standpoint. So I'm not going to go through all of these points, but I really want to point out is that what types of changes were made since this was last seen in 2019. One was harmonization. So you're gonna see a lot of very similar structure in the chapter and a lot of the similar elements that you'll see in USB 797, all right? So we see that in personnel training and evaluation, right? Our staff have to be trained before they're allowed to compound for humans or animals. And non-steroid compounding can be pretty complex. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot of equipment that's involved. We wanna keep our patients safe. We also wanna keep our employees safe as well. Another big theme is around personal hygiene and garbing. Right? Washing our hands, garbing, cross-contamination. We've probably seen that recently with amoxicillin. We've seen some things, uh, guidance documents from the FDA about cross-contamination concerns. Right? We're not even talking about hazardous drugs. We're talking about beta-lactam drugs. Right? How many of you are compounding that and already have cross-contamination elements built in? Right? So there's a lot of things to think about. And so we have that here with about garb being removed from the compounding area and not allowed to you know, kind of go back in. So there's some elements that are there as well to look at. Building and facilities, no substantial changes. And that, again, we're talking about in these slides from the 2019 remanded version. If we look back to the 2014 version, there is that you have to do your non-sterile compounds in a designated area. Right? And we have to define some area so you know what's in scope and what's out of scope. Can I compound a non-sterile preparation in the bathroom? probably not the best place to designate that, right? And so you have to identify that in your space to say, we are treating this area differently. And yes, non-sterile compounds are not sterile, but they still need to be clean, right? And so I always like to, when I'm talking to folks about, you know, why do we need to wear a hairnet while we're doing non-sterile compounds? I say, come with me, let's go down to the cafeteria, right? You got the gentleman or the lady who's scooping out the macaroni and cheese for you, right? And they're pretty well garbed. <laughs> They got gloves on, they got a mask on, they got a hairnet on, they're maybe wearing an apron so they don't bring macaroni and cheese home with them, right? So if the food service workers have to do it, guess what? In pharmacy, we gotta do it too, right? And so maybe that's a, you know, kind of a crazy connection there, but I always like to bring that back up. Cleaning and sanitizing. You know, some of the products that you're preparing may be sitting at room temp, 
And if that's contaminated, can certainly support microbial growth. And so there's some elements that we'll talk about here with cleaning and sanitizing the work area. And again, that's why you have to have a designated area. Talking about the water that's being used in your preparations, not only from a microbial perspective, but depending on the water, there's elements that can actually interact there. So there's a water reactivity and different TDS that can impact that. So highlighting that needs to be purified water or better. So what's or better if you're using a sterile water for irrigation, sterile water for injection, that would be classified as better quality water from that standpoint. Labeling some things to relate back to your master formulation record. It's a great area to look at within the chapter about what needs that master formulation record. And then as you're compounding to make sure it conforms with that and looking at all the requirements from there. All right, this next one, beyond use states. So the reason that we talked about the forbidden word appeal, right, was around this beyond use states. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of clarity that's needed. And in this chapter 795, we brought about a new term, water activity level. And through this first round and through the comments, we really found that a lot of folks did not understand water activity level. Despite water activity levels being used in other areas, maybe outside of pharmacy, we see it in cosmetics and other over-the-counter face creams and things that's been used for a while, it really hadn't gotten into our 503A compounding areas. And so in this version, there's a better definition or longer definition that really goes in to say, what is water activity? It's not water content, right? It's about that unbound, that free water that can support microbial growth, right? And further, it was about, well, do I need to test it? You know, my drug budget's already tight. Now you have to go out and buy all these meters to do all this testing. And that's not the case. You do not need to do testing on your formulations. And so a whole table was added to the chapter. So you could look at your dosage form and find out approximately what your water activity level is. Because ultimately we're trying to determine is that water activity level, is it greater than or equal to 0.6, which would conform to an aqueous preparation? Or is it less than 0.6 would mean it would be a non-aqueous. So those are really the important things. We're trying to figure out what side of that are we on and that can help you to follow this beyond use state table for your individual preparation. Now, this table is prefaced with in the absence of a USP NF preparation monograph or specific stability information, right? So one of the things that we added is saying, just because it says there's not stability information doesn't absolve the compounder from making sure they're doing their due diligence. Sometimes you can go out there and see certain drugs or the structure of, oh, this is gonna you know, be highly prone to photodegradation. There's gonna be other elements. Maybe it's a protein product. There's a lot of things to think about, but you still have to do your due diligence to know that it is stable throughout that thing. We can't just say, we don't have stability data. We can just put 14 days refrigerated on everything or 35 days and call it good. The other thing is talking about preserved aqueous dosage forms. We've got a lot of questions about this of, well, what if your base is preserved, right? Does that mean that the final preparation is preserved? And we get this question a lot for when you want to extend your beyond use dates. So extending beyond use states means we're going to go to beyond use states for, let's say, you know, one of these preserved aqueous dosage form for greater than 35 days. Well, the question is, when you add your medication to that vehicle, are you affecting that preservative system? Is it interacting in some way? Is the pH impacted? Are you diluting it down? Right? So one of the elements that was actually in the initial chapter, but I think highlighted in here now, is the use of USP51 antimicrobial effectiveness testing. We have to know that the preservative system works. Right? And so USP51 is pretty cool, check it out. I think it's uh, pretty neat about what it does, but it can essentially show you that your preparation does not support microbial growth under a certain period. So we've worked on some stability studies for non-sterile compounds within my organization, and we had a full stability indicating assay that resulted in 180 days at room temperature. Sounds great, right? That's what everyone wants, they want six months. When we did USP51 antimicrobial effectiveness testing, we had to reduce that beyond use state to 90 days. 
So it's really important for this because that means that that preservative system is likely not efficacious beyond 90 days. And if you have something sitting for an additional 90 days, you could have potentially very lethal or uh, harmful amounts of microbes or fungus or spores within that formulation. So here's the table that I was talking about that's now incorporated into the chapter. Again, you don't have to do water activity level testing, but you have this chart to reference from that standpoint. Other areas of harmonization around quality assurance and quality control, again, borrowed straight from USB 797. Documentation, again, more harmonization. You'll see a new documentation requirements within the chapter that goes into that QAQC program, and that's 795 and how many? A couple minutes. Now we're going to talk about 797. Low risk, medium risk, high risk, all of these terminologies are going away, all right? It'll no longer be in our vocabulary. And in many ways, I would say that transitioning to category one, two, and three makes things a little bit easier from a beyond you state perspective. Now, some would say, well, Kevin, you got three over here, you got three over here. <laughs> Come on, how did you make it easier? When we think about how you had to determine the low risk and medium risk was how many products do you have? How many packages do you have? How many transfers do you have? What environment are you on? Are you trained? Are you not? It was like a plethora of things that you had to think about. And a lot of times when I go out to organization, I would see that they were misapplying it and calling something low risk when it was really medium risk or vice versa. These new categories, category one, two, and three is about primarily based on where are you compounding? What's that environment of compounding? So of course you have a PEC used for each of these categories. And category one, a way to think about it is it can be your segregated compounding area. Category two is your cleanroom suite. And your category three is your cleanroom suite with additional controls. And you can see the different beyond use states there. We will definitely dive into some beyond use states. All right, so we heard in the appeals is that under certain areas of practice for compounders is they required longer beyond use states that having a limit within the chapter and not being able to go on to those would impact patient care in certain areas. And so when we took this back of looking at how can we add in longer beyond use states, we know that it's risky, right, to do that. And we were presented with a lot of data. And so we created category three. Right? And category three is for those extended beyond use states with those additional controls. And we'll talk about what some of those additional controls are, but would allow you to extend your beyond use state up to 180 days if certain conditions are met. So when you look back in the 2019, that's a pretty sizable change because that did not exist at all. It was, you had to do within the table and that's what you were held to. So when we look at the changes, we don't see a lot of changes for non-category three areas, right? Every six months for these. However, when you're doing category three compounding, we'll see that we have more frequent personnel qualification testing. So every three months for personnel who compound those category three CSPs. And then even talking about garbing requirements. And so there's just some additional elements that were added here and some clarifications really around, you know, not all sterile gloves are created equal. We can't have powder containing sterile gloves. We need low lint elements. We can't shed particles into our clean rooms because that's what clean rooms are. It's all about particle counts, right? And so we can't be adding to those particle counts otherwise we'd be outside of those. So just some additional clarification added to there. Now, when it comes to category three, we have these longer beyond use states. And we have to think about how do we reduce the risk of contamination? And one of the biggest ways of contamination is through personnel. Personnel are the ones that are bringing particles, they're bringing contaminants into the clean room. It obviously could come from materials ingress into the clean room as well. So a lot of focus was spent on category three with some of the garbing requirements. And you can see that some of these elements are borrowed from what we see in our 503B friends and GMP. If we want these longer beyond use states, we have to have these additional controls. And so that first and foremost is covering up all skin and hair in that buffer room. There's a great concept about this Austin P contamination index that looks at various levels 
levels of garbing and the impact it has on particle shed within our clean room environments. And guess what? The more that you contain those particles and cover it up, the less that gets in the environment, right? So that was really important for these longer BNU states. Additionally, we were presented with some data about the impact of having sterile garb. Right? So now we're covering everything up, but we're also having garb that has been usually gamma radiated. I think there's other methods to reduce that burden that's there. Disposable garbing must not be reused. If you're using things like goggles and things, you have to disinfect those per your facility SOPs. Again, we talked about category one and two and three, and the primary thing that drives that is what? Is the environment of which you prepare it. So the category three environment is that entire environment where those are prepared. Well, we focused on our personnel. We also have to focus on the environment. And so when it comes to viable air sampling and surface sampling, you can see that those are much more frequent than you would see within your category two CSPs. So for viable air sampling is on a monthly basis and your surface sampling is on a weekly basis. In addition to that surface sampling, there's also requirements for surface sampling at the end of a batch or if you're using a robotic system would be at the end of the day. So this is really important as we think about adding some quality assurance into this process. Right? You know, when we think about some of our certification processes of some of this testing in our current environment, we don't do for every six months. What happens in between those six months? Is everything perfect and everything's working according to plan? Sometimes you have your certifier come in and say, oh, there's a leak in the HEPA filter, but don't worry, we plugged it. How long has that leak been there for? So these are the things that you have to think about when you talk about risk reduction and risk mitigation strategies. More frequent testing can help you find that leak much, much quicker and be able to address that. And that becomes important for category three. For sterility testing, we see that within the beyond use state table in category twos is that we have beyond use states with sterility testing built in. Now that's a pretty sizable change from the 2008 version because there was a beyond use state table in there and it says these beyond use states are in the absence of sterility testing. But it didn't define if I do sterility testing, how far can I go? So that became really important because we've seen some pretty long beyond use states that really clinically are not needed. And so those were added into the table. Sterility testing is addressed. If you do sterility testing, yes, you can have longer beyond use states, but you can't go beyond the table. So we see that in category two for certain CSPs to obtain certain BUDs, but for category three, all of it needs to be sterility tested. There's no choice, that is a requirement. The other element is for batching. So your max batch size for all CSPs, this is not just for category three, requiring sterility testing must be limited to 250 units. Where did that number come from? So when we're sterility testing, it's a risk-based approach. Sterility testing is destructive, right? So you're making a batch, we're following USP 71, and we're trying to figure out how many samples do I need to send for testing to give me assurance that the rest of the batch that didn't get tested is also sterile. It's a risk-based approach. So what happens is when you get beyond 250 units within USP 71, there's actually a statistical drop on your ability to find a non-sterile unit. So that is the reasoning of why the committee put in this requirement to have this max batch size of 250 units because your ability to find a non-sterile unit is impacted if you go beyond that. And also, if you don't put a limit on it, what's to stop somebody from doing 10,000 batches, a million batches, right? As we see in some of our automated lines and manufacturing, some of their lines are 750,000 units per run. Well, that's not our industry. All right, so I think it's really important to, again, address the risk and the assurance that's there. Now, sometimes our batch sizes are much smaller. And so there's some elements in there about how many samples you would need to send if you were less than or equal to 40 units to follow that from that standpoint. 
The chapter does allow for alternative microbiological testing. So USP 71, the minimum incubation time is 14 days to get those results. If you're doing that outside and you're outsourcing it, you lose a day or two for shipping. So now you're looking at you know 15 and 16 days. Well, that takes a pretty sizable chunk out of your beyond use date. Since the chapter was presented, many Many new microbiological methods have been used in industry and they have a really great safe track record. And so the case here is that USB 71 is still our gold standard sterility test. And so if you're gonna be using a alternative microbiological method, you have to ensure that there's a non-inferiority to that of the USP 71 method. So definitely worth checking out because these rapid methods in the name are faster turnaround times than you would get with your traditional test. So if you're you know, looking at the table and you're like, oh, Kevin, that beyond you state's great, but I need longer. And if it's something you're sterility testing, look at alternative microbiological methods. That may be something to give you more of that useful beyond you state so you can take care of your patients. Bacterial endotoxin testing, just some clarifications there about when that would be required for category two from one or more non-sterile ingredients and for BUD that requires sterility testing. And then we have that for category three for component for one or more non-sterile components. So if it's a category two, but doesn't require sterility testing, you'll see that the requirement is a should, not a must. And I think it's really important as you're reading this chapter is that musts are requirements and shoulds are recommendations. And misreading that sometimes folks can freak out and see that. So I think it's good to slow down, reread that section and say, am I interpreting this the right way? But really deciphering between one or two words can make a big difference about that for your organization. All right, so we're briefly just gonna look at each of these beyond use states to see how we've changed. So our category one CSP beyond use state limits. So in our current setting, that's our low risk level CSP in a SCA or segregated compounding area. We got 12 hours, doesn't matter if it's refrigerated, room temp, we got 12 hours that we gotta deal with. In the new chapter, you see that we've stick with our 12 hours at controlled room temperature, but we now have an allowance for 24 hours as a maximum BUD if stored in the refrigerator. And I do want to preface that these are maximum beyond use states. There are occasions where you may need to assign a shorter beyond use state because of the stability um, that may be there. When we look at category two BUDs, the table that's in there, and I'll show you the whole table here in a minute, it can be kind of daunting to look at. The way that I would think about it is to think about what compounding do I do? Do I do any terminal sterilization? No, half the table's gone. Do I do any sterility testing? No, another part of the, you know, the table is gone. And so really just start with what do we do so I can really hone in on what's important. If you're looking at it, it can be really kind of confusing. So I'm gonna kind of break this down into little bite-sized pieces. So for category two, right? Aseptically processed, that means sterile to sterile, right? Or you could be doing filtration as well. Sterility testing, we're not doing that. Controlled room temp, we got one days, so we got four days in the refrigerator and 45 days. This is compared to one, three, and 45 from the high-risk compounding. So it's about non-sterile ingredients. So we had a slight change for the refrigerated condition there. When we look at preparing only from starting ingredients, which I would argue probably is the thing that impacts the most of us here, as a lot of us are doing just sterile to sterile in our clean room suites, is we got four days room temp, 10 days refrigerated, and 45 day frozen. This made it a lot easier, right? Because before you had to think, all right, well, is this low risk? Is this high risk? Am I batching? Is this for more than one patient? How many transfers do I have? You don't got to think about that anymore. So your biggest takeaway from here, four days, 10 days, 45 days. That's what the majority of us likely are gonna to need to know. So you can see again, by looking at this table, there's a lot of information on there, but really hone in on that for your specific operation. 
Category three. So for category three, like we said, they all require sterility testing. And so that would be a requirement for that. So then it's broken down by, are you doing aseptic processing or are you doing terminal sterilization? So terminal sterilization is we're supplying some type of killing method to that. It could be with steam, with heat, radiation, right? Aseptic is sterile to sterile through filtration. That we have our controlled room temps of 60 days, 90 days, and 120 for aseptic, 90, 120, and up to 180 for terminal sterilization. So the last little bit here is about multiple dose CSPs. So remember how we talked about USP 51 testing when we talked about our 795? Well, those same elements can apply here. When we have a multi-dose product that usually infers that there's some type of preservative system in there that allows repeated access of that device and minimizing contamination or extensive growth. And so we certainly have that here as well. Well, what about non-preserved aqueous topical ophthalmics? And so there was a new section that was added there to say that if you meet these certain conditions, you don't need to perform that USP 51 testing. And so that would be, must be made in a clean room suite. That means category two or category three, right? Must be for a single patient. And once you administer that first drop or you access that, you have to change the beyond use state no more than 72 hours refrigerated or 24 hours room temp. So I think that's gonna really help those that are involved in ophthalmic compounding. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more episodes from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basilica from ASHP Official and thank you for all you do for your patients.